Welcome to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners. This is the podcast that brings you inspiring people and their inspiring stories. How did they find their way to the top and how can their path help you do the same? Here's your host, network broadcaster, executive and entrepreneur, Craig Cam. Right now on this edition of Tracks to Success, You'll meet a woman who's won games, built leagues, formed a production company, written books, built platforms, and then stood on them to speak, lead, and empower and inspire many. Born on Long Island, she grew up in Queens. She wasn't a three-sport athlete. She was a five-sport athlete. Went to play college basketball, then played professionally as well. Who knew she would one day become the president of the WNBA? Before that, the road was television and media production, which vaulted her into a 17-year executive role with the PGA Tour, building business, negotiating huge deals, expanding global reach. After stepping away from the WNBA, she launched a nonprofit geared toward bringing women together and also an LLC focused on consulting, both in the same year. She's been voted among the top 10 most powerful women in sports, Newsweek's 100 most influential in sports business, and she's given a TED Talk to share her message. Failure motivates her, curiosity drives her, and believing gives her the energy to keep it all going. Her name is Donna Orender. Her inspiring story, and this edition of Tracks to Success starts now. Well, Donna, thank you so much. I am truly honored to have you on Tracks to Success. I'm calling this a great get, okay? I'm, I'm thrilled to have you be a part of this. I'm also calling this a bit of a reunion of sorts. So I really appreciate yeah. the time. How you doing? Doing great. It is a reunion of sorts, and I love reunions. I think that's, if there, if there is a silver lining, this is one of them from yes. this period that we are living in. Yes. Well, I'm honored. I want to kick things off by talking about your TED Talk experience. Now, I know you do a lot of things. We are going to get into all of those and your background, but the TED Talk fascinates me. I want you to tell me about that. You, you've done some things. How nerve-wracking was that for you? What's that process like? Actually, um, I, it's become kind of a focal piece of some of the public speaking I do because I found it to be almost debilitating. Um, I became very well aware that you are going to deliver these words um, that will live on forever in this kind of sacred, very visible vault, if you will. And um, at every word, I parsed every single word thinking about what it would mean to different constituencies and listeners. And I became very sensitized. And then you also had to be very disciplined and the time amount, and then they wanted you to memorize it. And all of a sudden I had this thing about memorizing it. So all of those things together brought me to a standstill for about three months. I literally wrote five different TED Talks, like different ways to approach it before I finally could settle in and feel like, okay, here is my voice, here's the message I wanna give, I feel comfortable with it, and I am pretty sure I can memorize it. <laughs> The memorizing would just unnerve me. I mean, that that's probably what scares people. The number one fear among Americans is public speaking anyway. Then you throw that into the mix and you have to be perfect. You've got nothing behind you. You're, you're basically naked on a stage with an audience to deliver one of the biggest messages you could ever deliver. Correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But, you know, at the end, I, I always felt like, you know, it will work out. Just get yourself there. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, is a, is, a, is a major lesson in life. And one of the ones I've learned, play, I learned very young as an athlete, which is, hey, you just got to put in the work, do it as hard and as best as you can, commit. And if you do, you'll get a result. And so ultimately, actually, that was my self-talk during the process. That's good. I do a lot of self-talk. I've been watching you lately, Donna, Facebook Live with your Generation W, Generation Wow, really putting people together for opportunities yeah. to educate, connect, inspire, mentor, all those things involving women, focused on that. What's the motive behind it all? 
uh, I believe the world is a better place when we uh, live together and learn together because ultimately we can lead together. As you know, I spent many years um, uh, at the WNBA where I learned a lot about how the world felt about women. I spent a lot of time with girls who looked up to those women. I still am one of those girls uh, in a woman's body, I believe, and, um, and felt that there is a lot of unfinished high potential work to do in elevating and um, creating opportunities and making sure that women who are 52% of the population in this country, um, that there's equity. Now, I, I do want to say this, we believe in all, so the work is focused on women, but it is an, it's an inclusive message. So, you know, we, we value um, working side by side with men, uh, having them part of this work and movement. So um, I find that a real positive as well. Really good setup because we're going to get to a lot of that more in depth in just a little bit. But I want to go way back. I want to go back to childhood and kind of figure out where this track to success all started. So you grew up in Queens. Uh, you were born on Long Island. Actually, I grew up on Long Island. I grew up in Long Island. Okay. All right. Long Island. What type of a young girl were you? Were you an, I, I know you were an athlete for sure, but, but what do you remember about those days? Would everybody have said, yep, Donna Orander's going to do this? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I was extraordinarily active, so not that much different than I am now. I have incredibly curious, had a wide range of interests, felt that my friend groups were across a wide diversity of interests. So it wasn't like, you know, you know, in high school, you, gotta, you kind of have your groups. Mm -hmm. I had lots of groups and I like being friends with lots of groups and I like doing lots of things, but I did play sports. I played seven sports in a, in a year. Um, I even went to dance school and then Hebrew school and all these other things. So I, I felt like the seeds of both a learning curiosity as well as a people curiosity have been with me since I've been young. I had heard and read five sports. Now you're telling me seven. Uh, it was seven, so we, we can count them. Yeah, like. let's do that. That's what I want to do. Run them uh, off because we I know you were great uh, in basketball. Well, yeah, but the season started out with field hockey, which I still love. I'd love to play field hockey. You can't just go get a pickup field hockey game. But I played field hockey. I played volleyball. I played softball. I played basketball. I ran track. I vaulted on the gymnastics team, and then ultimately I played on the boys' tennis team. So there you go, seven. Wow. Elmont High School, tennis, yes, you mentioned that. No girls' team, so you right. tried out for the boys' team, right? You just started whipping them, and then all of a sudden you were there. You were like the first girl ever to play tennis at the school? I was the first girl to play any sport, I believe, um, in the state of New York huh. at the time. Wow. At least that's what I was told. That was, I mean, that wasn't a motivation or anything. That was just kind of like an after fact, or maybe on Long Island or something like that. But yeah. So you had the confidence there wasn't a to lot, do that. There wasn't a lot of role models for me at that point in time. Why? Uh, because girls just didn't play sports. It wasn't something that was encouraged. So uh, you know, there weren't there weren't a lot of me's out there, and so I just did something that I loved, which was play. I, I, I think I always saw it, and I, I, I haven't talked about this recently, but I think I always had a sense that there was greater value placed on the boys, uh, that they had a great deal more power and influence. And sports seemed to be a direct road to that. And I said, well, you know what? If it works for them, it could work for me too. Plus, I loved it. <laughs> and you were good at it. Queens College, right? All-America, yeah. Schools Athletic yeah. Hall of Fame. I mean, just an amazing yeah. career, Donna. But you you bypassed, what, an academic scholarship to go to a different school? You chose the athletic route and then had an amazing career. In fact, played in the first ever women's game, college game at Madison Square Garden. What do you remember well, about all first, those days? First women's game of any type at Madison Square Garden. Of any type, actually, um, which we're really, really proud of. Really proud of. That was such a, an electric experience. Um, what am I most proud of? Did you ask me? Yeah. About that? Yeah. Uh, I am really proud of an, an amazing coach who still has not been inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, which is a travesty. Um, she was a pioneer who taught us how to excel and we did that we didn't have any scholarships we didn't have a whole lot of money 
Um, we went to our, you know, our games were on buses, but we were such a dominant team and we played at such a high level. And she taught us how to draw out the best in each of ourselves and the best of each other. And that is a legacy, which today she's still around. I continue to thank her for. Yeah, I'm sure you've passed that on to many that you've mentored or led in your career. You majored in psychology, is that correct? I'm, I'm sure that that in and of itself has probably served you so well in working with and empowering other people to do better. You know, it's really amazing how we look at education today, how we look at the values of majors, uh, the value of what we should be learning. My goal always, I remember, was to make a difference in the world. And I actually thought it was going to be through social work, which in a sense I still do, which is what I'm doing now in a sense. Um, and so I thought psychology, the understanding of people, which is fascinating, why we do the things we do, what motivates us. Um, I figured that no matter what business or whatever, wherever you ended up, although I did have a target for social work school, would be beneficial. Ultimately, like ultimately, my life story played out in a different way. But that that thread of understanding people and wanting to help people through understanding who they are—that's a little repetitive—really um, has stayed true. It's it's an amazing thing. I think it helps people a lot in business and understanding how the mind works, how other people feel, because it's not necessarily about you know anything more than how we make others feel when we're trying to you know, do business with them, negotiate, make a connection, et cetera. I want to talk about your pro basketball career in the WBL. I think yes. you're, you're one of only 20 to play all three seasons in that league, three yes. different teams, right? New York, New Jersey, yes. Chicago. I remember the Chicago team. They were the hustle, the hustle. The hustle. Yes, we were. We were the Chicago hustle. I loved playing in Chicago. It was a great city great sports city. And it was open to us in a way that was wonderful. We had great fans there. Um, we had a good, a interesting ownership, good ownership there before it all kind of crumbled. But I loved it. I loved every second of it. You were a good player. And then the league shuts down, goes away. Yeah. You wrote an article for the New York Times that I think is interesting. And I think it can give us a sense for how you felt about your opportunity and and what that was like maybe what it taught you the article called making a dream come true and watching it fade away I'm, I'm assuming that that is tied to a league shutting down and and this career that you had strived for and were you know loving is all of a sudden dashed in an instant how, how was that for you um I you know you were at the height of exhilaration first of all you achieved the highest level um, in sport, which is to be paid for what you do. Not something that women are, I mean, it's something that women are still fighting for to this day, mm -hmm. right? In, mm -hmm. in very visible ways. And there we were. And um, the business model, the investors just couldn't sustain itself. Um, and I, it's funny, I pull out that article. I actually have a file on my desk and I keep it. And I remember being at the WNBA and pulling it out and feeling really sad because the thematics of what I wrote then still have far too much truism to what is happening today. So in all this time, while we had made great advances, um, not nearly enough. Maybe we're on the cusp now. Maybe we're on the cusp of, of greater change. And I'm hopeful that we are. Um, understanding when we look at the history of sports and leagues, you know, the NBA 50 years in, um, Right, was still struggling. It took 50 years for the NBA to kind of get over the, the bubble, if you will. And uh, we're early in that time span, but we live in a different time with social media and the need for immediate um, returns and a lot of expectations that probably were not had at a time when the other leagues had their ability and time to form. Sports is so much about superstars and marketing today and and corporate sponsorship and dollars and rights fees and all that, which we're going to get into a little bit, but how is it so tough for women's sports? Why is it that you say we're still striving, we're still doing this, we're still, but can't seem in your mind, your words, to break through and get over that biggest hurdle? What is holding 
women's sports back in your estimation? I mean, in a time when we talk about institutionalized and systemic issues, I believe that the way we as a culture look and value uh, women uh, is challenged by and large, even though we're the majority of it. And, um, you know, sports has a long history of being male dominated. That's not a judgment. It's not angry. It just is, you know, you take a step back, you study psychology, you study sociology, you say, okay, how do these social segments, how, how do these businesses form? And what's the underlying culture for them? Uh, and women are much later to the game for a variety of reasons, um, economic reasons, when you look at the, uh, how, the, how, how um, we went from a industrial, we went from an agricultural society to an industrial society, how women then somehow were relegated to stay at home. All of these things actually play a part in how, how we are able to succeed in, in certain industries and especially in business overall now. And we're working our way through it. Um, it's, it's not easy, it's complex. Uh, the world tells us every single day who is worth more than, who is worth less than. And um, unfortunately, those subtle messages that become not so subtle messages continue to say that women are not as valued in the sports realm as they should be. Is that the fault of corporate America? I, I, don't, I, think, I think we are all actually victims of a group kind of think um, that we all participate in some ways. And we have to become aware of it and be able to step out of it and then take action. And you know, I, I, will, I will say this, at the WNBA right now, their new campaign of getting companies to step in. Um, I, heard, I heard a great story, you'd appreciate this with your background from the LPGA as well. Um, how companies are now looking at how they spend because they're being held accountable by their shareholders and their customers along all of equity. We're talking about racial equity, but we also um, have gender equity. And they're saying that, wait a second, our portfolios are really unbalanced in terms of an equity um, measure. And so, you know, we should be investing differently. And as companies begin to realize that, uh, we're going to see accelerated change. I'll be the first one to say the opportunity to elevate a women's professional sports league was so appealing to me and the chance to take right. athletes who I felt didn't get the opportunity to share a message about all the great things they do and elevate that platform was was a thrill ride for me. I enjoyed every bit of it. I went from media to that. You went from professional women's basketball to the media. I find this fascinating. You worked for ABC in production, and then you started your own production company. Before I say what made you do that, so there's my, my question, I gotta throw out the name of this production company because you're, yeah. you're pretty clever. Primo Donna Productions. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had a cute logo too. It wasn't cute, I mean, it was, it was a serious business logo, but I kind of liked it. <laughs> Why'd you do it? Um, I'm trying to think I did that. I did it because actually I had a lot of interest in, from people who wanted to do business. And uh, I thought it would be a really great opportunity to do that. At the time I was doing, um, I, I, I think I had just left the initial PGA tour productions company and the tour still wanted to do business and the PGA of America wanted to do. So I had all these companies that really wanted me to lead part of their businesses. And I said, okay, well, why don't I just wrap that all up and do it as a production company? And so I did. Yeah. So it's great. I, I mean, like in my twenties to be able to start a business, um, run a successful business before I sold it was really fantastic. And I talked to college kids often. And matter of fact, I recently talked to a bunch of interns at a tech company. And I said, you know, to have business experience at a big corporate company, such as ABC before it became Cap Cities, to work at a challenger company, which was Rainbow Programming, you know, cable television, which is like the internet today, challenger opportunities, and then to work out of your own pocket. Each one of those is such an informative experience in understanding business. I so value each one of them. I, I often say, though, you don't really understand business until you work out of your own pocket. You understand where you're going to spend, where you're going to invest, what's important. And then it also sheds light on the companies you work for or the ones you're going to work with as well. So I feel very fortunate that I've had this rather, um, I guess, full experience of business entities 
that has taught me a lot over the years. That you have. You were an original producer of Inside the PGA Tour, then climbed your way up as an executive. You had, had a hand in so many things there, business development, negotiation of the huge $400 million network TV deal back in 97, then the circle with the commissioner of the PGA Tour, a lot of work with Tim Fincham. What was the biggest victory for you there in your mind? In other words, I know the tour had many victories because I was I was riding that wave as well during my time at Golf Channel. Yeah. I'm well aware of everything you did, but but what is it that you're most proud of? What did you learn about yourself and what did you succeed? Um I I always I always try to look at things as creatively as possible. I was, I, I was and still remain not the person who wants to say, well, this is the way we always done it. I always find that a challenge. If that's the way we've always done it, why? Is that a good thing? Or is there an opportunity for us to be to take that to another level or look at it through a different lens? Um, I mean, that's kind of what allowed me to bring in and create um, PGA Tour Radio. I remember at the time, people thought that was insane. Oh, my cohort, that is crazy. Who wants, who wants to listen to golf on radio? And I'm like, I was a kid who grew up listening to baseball with my dad in the garage as he worked. You know, the Ralph Kiner and the Mets. I loved radio. I thought it was magical. And think about it. This is before really the internet took over. And I wanted, And here I was. I had to watch every single golf um, tournament that we had. My life wasn't like this is week May 22nd. This is Memorial Week. My life was a golf calendar. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to get these audio feeds delivered. And sure enough, was able to negotiate a deal with XM radios and then became XM serious. And to this day, it's quite successful, isn't it? It is. And I'm thankful because I work for them and host multiple shows on their platform. So I'll send you a thank you note. And I'm truly <laughs> appreciative of you doing yeah, but I, And then I would also say also looking at our calendar. I mean, being, being part of um, and initiating the whole idea of early round coverage. Yeah. Really, it's the basis of the Golf Channel's initial success. We didn't really have that. I think we had like 10 events on USA Network and whatever. But literally, I put together the entire the entire package of saying, let's look at how we can repackage our programming. Let's create early round and make those packages. And let's tie them to different weeks. And let's create seasonality throughout the whole season. And let's create the World Golf Championships. All of that, and then build our media around that globally, and then build up our international television, which when I took over our international television, it was $1 million in revenue. And I have to say, uh, a rather unknown story, or not least, and probably would, I guess, because there were just very few people involved, um, was I had a number that I thought we could get based on understanding the marketplace. And one of the biggest negotiators, most famous, God rest his soul, he just passed, I mean, honored and admired this man, came in to negotiate with the kid. And, uh, you know, we'll give you this. And I'm like, nah, I, I don't think so. Because I can get this, and not only can I get this, but we will have so much more flexibility to build our business. I'm not sure that's the right deal. So, of course, they went back to Tim, and they said, Tim, you know, blah, 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 or this. And this is like, you know, this is one of the biggest entities in sports and a golf, a golf partner. And Tim calls me and he goes, well, listen, they're saying this. I said, listen, Tim, it's your call. Here's how it could work. We can do this, 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 and this, and this. And ultimately, I think we can build out this. Or here's what this deal means. And it's much more limited. And we don't have control over our own brand or where we want to go. And God bless him. He said, you know what? Let's, let, let, let's, let's, let's take it your way. Let's try it. Um, it's funny. There's a guy in the business for 25 years who didn't talk to me. I often think, and I'm going to say this out loud, Craig, that if I was a man, he would try to hire me. But as a woman, it was like, wow, she's so bad. I'm like, no, actually, that $1 million turned into $40 million over time. And um, uh, it, it was just incredible. We were able to really change the construct of many business relationships that allowed so much growth yeah. in a positive way. And uh, I am happy that I was trusted enough to make that stuff happen. I don't say this because you're a guest on this podcast. I say this because I know this to be true. You were so well respected within the golf circle. And I can, I guess I can thank you not only for SiriusXM PGA Tour Radio, I can thank you for the 
pre-game and post-game shows that were created on Golf Channel that I hosted for <laughs> many years. So, so in effect, you were creating my paychecks uh, long, long ago and to this day, Donna. So I appreciate that. No problem. No problem. I, listen, I remember when the Golf Channel was around and they said, okay, go figure it out. I literally put together like this, what a Golf Channel would look like. You know what I mean? Like what it would be. Um, and then the, the financial analysis of, you know, I, I wasn't the ultimate financial an, um, analyst, but what it would look like in terms of putting it together, which was so much fun. And then ultimately we decided to go with Joe Gibbs, um, which was great. And, you know, interesting, so interesting when we look through the history of media, not only at the PGA Tour, um, but we look what's happened with the NBA and NFL and NHL, everybody who is continuously, and right now I'm on the board of the World Surf League, which I love, I sit on our global digital media committee, there's three of us, um, and look at the, how much the world's changed in terms of content, and yet how much it hasn't, because at the end of the day, uh, the goals are still the same. You want as many eyeballs as, as you can. You want them delivered in a way that your consumers and fans can consume them. And you want to be able to drive revenue that's going to support and underpin your sport. Um, so it's all fascinating. Hey, everybody. I really want to tell you about Ahead, one of our new partners this season and now the official headwear provider of Tracks to Success. Creativity, a sharp look, dozens of styles to choose from. Ahead's been supplying the most prestigious events and outfitting the world's top golfers for 25 years, and it's perfect for you as well. So if you're looking to dress for success, make sure you think ahead. Here's your chance to save big. Visit aheadusashop.com now and use the code TTSPOD. That's TTSPOD and receive 20% off your purchase. Ahead, the finest in headwear, the official headwear of the Tracks to Success podcast, and available at aheadusashop.com. Let's talk about the WNBA. Val Ackerman, Val Ackerman leaves. You get the call. Adam Silver recruited you. Tell me about yeah. that. Well, Adam and I were friends for a long time. I mean, a long time. And um, I don't know if you remember, because it's funny, Don Garber reminded me this, of this the other day. I spoke to him. Um, you know, we had the NFL Cadillac. Remember that event mm -hmm. where we had the NFL players and a pro-am and it was a lot of fun. So I created that with Don Garber. And at some point, I think Adam was interested in doing something for, with the NBA players. The NBA, a lot of those guys played golf. And we never quite could get there, but we became great friends. Um, and so whenever I go to New York, I would see him. We're still great friends. And when it was time to move, when, when it was time for Val to move, um, he did call me. And asked me if I'd be interested. And I was like, I, you know, I never thought about it. I love basketball. It's still my passion to this day. Um, but I never really thought about it. I was so immersed at, in golf at the PGA Tour. I didn't even follow the league that much. Hmm. Um, but he piqued my interest. And, you know, it was a long courtship, <laughs> longer than David would have liked. But ultimately, the move that I felt I had to make. Yeah. What was women's basketball in dire need of that was the big challenge that brought you there um what was it well it was a business that was not ascending at the time i mean if you recall the, it launched with one of the greatest fanfares ever they had 40 million dollars in sponsorship they were on the cover of ad week rick wilkes who's a man i love to this day with foul gary stevenson was involved which is one of your former colleagues mm -hmm. um it was it, it was Big time, big time, high expectations. But after two years, the business reality of running it started to lose some esteem. So by the time I got there in year nine, every, every single business metric had declined precipitously. And there was a lot of talk about whether this league was going to make it and be around. Um, I felt I had achieved so much in my life because I was an athlete. I felt like people have been great to me and supported me. I felt like I had an enormous amount of industry wisdom and experience. And I felt like women's sports were not valued in the way that they should be. And I should, if I could give back and try to pay it forward and make a difference, I had a responsibility to do that. My friends, I mean, the, the people at the tour thought I was crazy. 
I mean, come on, I had the corner office, I had access to the plane. Um, I pretty much could like pursue the deals as I saw fit, working with my peers and connecting. And, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty great. And they were like, what? You're leaving Tiger Woods and going to Diana Taurasi? What are you thinking? And I said, I think, I'm, I think what I'm thinking is that as I looked around all of my peers at the PGA Tour, I realized they all had daughters. And I said, I'm doing this for your daughters and I'm doing this for my sons because this is important. That's why I'm doing this. And off I went. Wow. It was frightening at first, I have to say. <laughs> I've been there. But sometimes if we don't, you know, give ourselves a stretch opportunity or, or put ourselves, you know, outside of our comfort zone, we don't grow. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, there was always swirl at the tour about who was going to succeed Tim. Obviously, 15 years later, the swirl came to a, you know, really terrific, terrific Jay Monahan. Um, but like this was a, there's not many jobs like this in the industry. And so to be offered the honor of that position, I felt like I, I should accept. Well, you really put a thumbprint on things. 20% rise in sponsorship during your tenure, 25% rise in viewership, six years of attendance growth after many years of decline. You negotiated an eight year deal with ABC and Disney. How do you pinpoint your success? Like I, those are the results, okay? And, and results really don't drive people. It's the process from what I've heard from leaders that really gets them up in the morning. So what was it in your mind that enabled you to, to make all that happen? Is it your ability to connect with people? Is it your ability to persuade people? What is it? I, I just think it was a passionate belief in the value of these athletes and this league and this product, not only as a commercial enterprise, but as a value and values oriented um, centerpiece of our lives. And these are, and they remain extraordinary. And I think they're all starting to get into the bubble now. So I'm excited to see how it's gonna happen. Um, these are extraordinary athletes who've devoted their life at the highest level, who believe not only in themselves, but in their communities and giving back and they give you everything they have. It's family oriented. It's seeing strong women in arenas where you normally would see men that speaks volumes in a society that desperately needs to hear gender equity um, as well as racial equity messages. And the product was priced for family. So it was good family entertainment, which I think is also really important. And it also spoke to young girls and young boys. And one of my favorites, and I did talk about this, I think in the TED talk, maybe I, I can't remember, was my kids at this point in time were like nine, eight and nine years old. And I brought him to New York City and she was back here. We, I commuted, but when we were up there, he commuted. It was his turn. Uh, and they're playing in their little league in Central Park, which by the way, was exhilarating for me. Uh, and they'd come to all the games with all their baseball friends and they'd run around the court and they'd get the girls autographed. And I'm like, yes. They didn't see them as girls basketball. They saw them as exciting, elite professional athletes. And that desire to have the proximity to them begins to change an overall paradigm of how we value each other. And as you can tell, I'm still very passionate about that. Clearly, clearly. Top 10 women in sports, you were voted. Power 100 in sports business. That's because of your successes. I know you just talked about how you guys were commuting back and forth, family in Florida, you up in New York, you had twin sons, et cetera. What made you bang your head against the wall about the opportunity of being the president of the WNBA? What was the thing there that, that you felt like, I just can't get this done. This is frustrating me. You mean while I was there? When I, I, yeah. I, you know what? Um, it's funny. I, there's, I remember this. First of all, when you take a business over and you find that there is a lack of unified believers or a belief system that's going to support it, you got, okay, I got to fix this first because you have to have a belief system um, in order to build anything, actually, in this case, this league. And so I spent the first 18 months trying to figure out where the gaps were and then trying to, and then trying to bring those and closing those gaps and building a connected belief system that this business, there's a lot of people that believed, but it was like, how do we make it work? 
And um, the frustration thing is people think you're going out of business. Even the people who love you are saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to leave there. So we got through that hump. By year three, it was like, okay, I am not listening to any naysayers anymore. I kind of closed my door, put my hand over my ears. And David taught me this, God rest his soul. I'm not listening to no. No doesn't get us anywhere. Talk radio wants to question our existence. Like, just shut off the radio. I don't need to listen. I am out in the marketplace. I am with communities and families. And I see the real tangible results of this connectivity. And you know what? That's what we're going to continue to build on. And so beginning in year three, and then understanding what are the levers of its success as valued and judged by the marketplace. And the first thing was attendance. Attendance hadn't grown in eight or nine years. I'm like, okay, let's look at our attendance. Why isn't it growing? Okay. How can it grow? Okay. Then fine. Let's focus on how it, how it can grow. And then it happened. In year one, the year we started to focus on it, we grew our attendance 1%. So what does that mean? It means that we didn't go down. <laughs> 1%. Year two, we were up 2%. Now in two years, we're up 3%. Guess what? All of the stories started to immediately flip. Look at the WNBA. They're growing. Your sponsors hear that. They can, they can sigh. They can exhale a sigh of relief and say, okay, we're going in the right direction now. And once people started to believe and see that movement, then every other, we were able to build on every other metric. Now, I do want to say that I was given another wonderful gift. Um, it was, I also um, stepped in right at the beginning of the, the recession came two years later. And so um, we were able to outsell every other sport. Now in total dollars, it was a mere pittance compared to one NFL sponsorship. But that's why we were able to grow. So because we had a value and values message, I think that still resonates today. Season two of Tracks to Success is brought to you by Presentation Partners. Presentation Partners is a unique team of award-winning executives helping you build a presentation others will be talking about. Presentation Partners teaches you the true art of storytelling. And if you haven't heard about their neuroscience of persuasion, You'll see how valuable it is to own it. Whether you're a company or an entrepreneur, Presentation Partners is the team you need behind you. For almost 15 years, they've helped clients raise millions in capital and countless dollars in sales simply by making top leaders successful presenters. The time is now to find your authentic voice and learn your authentic story. Presentation Partners, creating persuasive story presentations based on something other than just your good looks. 2011, you, you stepped away and you started two big things, Generation W, the nonprofit, yeah. and Orinder Unlimited, the profit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> con consulting. Um, in starting those things, what was your mission to serve? What, what did you aim to do? Uh, who needed what? Why did you do it? And how nervous were you to, to leap into that? I don't know that I was all that nervous per se. It was just kind of time. Um, I knew I had spent a lot of time away from my family and my kids. And it was time for me to be around for them, but probably for me as well. Um, my phone thankfully rang one of my most exciting projects to this day just Doranka called me was to take on um this wonderful project uh, called connecting with her which the golf industry did an analysis and said oh you know we're not growing yes uh we looked at it i think boston consulting group and said women are the key to growth and i'm like really i could have told you that as well and he said listen we want to get the industry under an umbrella, would you lead that initiative? And I could not have been more happy to do it, nor felt more prepared. Because here I was having just spent six years at the helm of a business um, around, focused around strong women, making that viable and sustainable. And of course, as you know, I spent 17 years in the golf business. And just because I was a female, didn't understand that I understood how all that worked, but now I understood how it all worked. And I, I have to say, I think it was some of my best work. I just loved that assignment. We wrote a book I, that, I, that um, I still have up here called Connecting With Her, which was a tremendous guide that taught the industry a couple of things if they read it. Um, one, what's happening in, in terms of social dynamics with women in general? 
Two, how do women think and act and behave as consumers? And then understanding that, the third part that I did with Susie Whaley, who was the most incredible thought partner and a great friend, was how do you translate all of that into actual tactics? And I went all across the country to speaking to PGA sections, uh, 350 guys at a time. There might be a couple of women. And it was funny for me to be in that reverse situation. I'd spent so much time speaking with women. Now I was back with men. And you can feel like the kind of uh, the uncomfortability, you know, talking about sex, race, politics, and gender you know, can be, make people uncomfortable. And my job was to figure out how to be able to make everyone feel comfortable in finding a way to do your business as best as you can and grow it. And I loved it. It was really great. Yeah. Talking with Donna Orinder, CEO of Orinder Unlimited. You have served or do serve, by my count, on six boards. That's what I counted. Um, you provided a whole lot. It seems like give back at this stage of your career is really huge for you. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, yes, it is. It is. It is. Why? It is. And that's why I, and then that was the other piece when I came home was I created Generation W. And uh, that really was born from what I learned at the WNBA, um, what I saw as I spoke and attended events all over the country and said, you know what? I would like to do something that gives back. <laughs> And then I had this moment thinking, is that like a moment of hubris? Like, what happens if they don't want it? And I said that. I said, well, if they don't want it, then they'll tell me and it won't work and okay. But really believe in educating, inspiring, and connecting. I focus on women. And um, I, it was just kind of me. And I went from around starting to um, merchandise this idea a little bit. And companies were like, yeah, I mean, yeah, that sounds great. We're, 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 we'll do that with you. And um, I had a great group of friends that I'd met along the way, extremely accomplished, mostly women. And not that there weren't men, but this was a female focused um, event. And uh, they said, if you do this, we'll come. And they did. And year one, we had 700 people attend. PGA Tour Productions remains our production company. Um, I went to Tim early and uh, I'm very happy that they said we'll step in and support one of our own, but not only because it's you, because the mission is important. Um, and now we're in nine years in and we have Generation Wow, which is our ex exponentially growing uh, team leadership mentorship program that is in Orlando. Uh, the Orlando School District is our partner here in Jacksonville, Florida, up in New York City. We're talking to Newark, Portland, Oregon. We have a club in Bethesda, Maryland. We have a pilot right now in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so this work around girls, um, uh, underpinned by the philosophy of the positive, the possible, uh, is very powerful. So it's, it's really it's really terrific work, and it fuels my soul and so many in our Generation W community that are now across the country and going beyond is very bad is very is validating and uh and it feels pretty good you talked about another book you you've done a ted talk here's another book attributed to you it's called wowsdom girl's yeah. guide to positive and the possible now i have two girls what is it in your mind that girls need most today i think there's a couple of there's a couple of things i think we talk a lot about about girls' belief in themselves and creating a positive path that they can see living in their, you know, in the exploration of their journey forward. So we work a lot with self-esteem, confidence, leadership skills, and also creating safe spaces for them to come together and share who they are without feeling threatened. Um, and so I think those are the issues that are at the um, bottom of the funnel for them, but there's lots of other things that we're making good decisions we'll, we'll talk about. We talk about careers, how you look at the world and being what you can't see and understanding what the world says to you and what it doesn't say to you and how do you internalize that and then again, chart your own path. Um, I love this book. I hope you have two, one for each of your daughters. Of course, you can get one for your wife too. It's great for women. My boys each have one by their bed. Yes, I know they're mine, but it's um, it's it's the powerful use of authentic storytelling 
that helps us learn from each other, both from an intergenerational perspective, um, but also um, from our peers. Only, and, only uh, if you sign the books, okay? I will definitely. I will definitely sign them. Right. Uh, we use them as we we built a curriculum off of them, and so now um, schools are adopting them. And like I just said, we have a pilot in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, working with the Bank of America for uh, twenty five teen girls, and we built uh, a wonderfully engaging, interesting curriculum for them and each of them has a book and they use the book but they also have great conversations with each other and meet interesting people and um, the feedback has been really extraordinary in addition to hosting this podcast craig leads the can advisory group focused on elevating communication for companies and individuals company consulting empowering team and individual workshops mind-altering webinars, and Craig's inspiring keynotes for your conference or company meeting. They're all on the menu of services. Can Advisory helps companies clarify their message, helps professionals build and showcase their brand, and helps everyone present their best selves. So if you're the leader of a team or company looking to give your employees a game-changing one-day experience or an individual who wants to become a speaker and presenter that gets other people talking, visit canadvisory.com. And when you do connect, make sure to mention the Tracks to Success podcast to receive a special discount on any of the Can Advisory services. That's canadvisory.com. Now back to the interview. A couple of things before we go, Donna. This podcast is called Tracks to Success. Now, you've veered and pivoted and done lots of different things. I always say that the career path is not a straight line for most. And some people feel stuck. They just don't know where to go. They don't know where their next opportunity might come, how to make opportunities happen, etc. What would your advice be? A successful person who's done so much, how can people get unstuck? What can they do to yeah, find their purpose? I think it's a really great question and it's a conversation that um, I have regularly with so many different people. I, I think that when we put ourselves in a box or feel confined, then we truly limit our possibilities. And so I'm like, okay, first of all, just jump out of that imaginary box that you don't even probably realize that you're in, but you are. Right. I, you know, I am this. I am this. No, actually, we are all of these things and give yourself permission. Right. P to pursue the other aspects of your life that have interest for you. Right. So uh, often it's our self-definition that is self-limiting. Um, I, you know, people say, what's your elevator speed? So like, I'm like, I don't have an elevator. Speed. I just I, as I look back, I just kind of follow the things that I was interested in, I was passionate about, that I wanted to make a difference in. And it's taken me in a variety of different fields and I'm not done yet, which is the beauty of it. And so I, I, I in my talk, as you know, for Ted, I, I, I will go back to that. I use these two defining words, which is why not? What is your why not question? Why not do this? And when you start to frame your world with why not, as opposed to why, you're giving yourself precision, your self-permission to pursue what is possible. And I think that is a big life opener for a lot of people. Um, and also the, um, I guess it unsticks you as, 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 as it pertains to your question, right? Yeah. How do you get unstuck? Yeah. Ask yourself, why not? I travel the country speaking as well. I do leadership communication workshops for corporations. And I talk a lot about the importance of today, cutting through the noise, cutting through the clutter, finding a way to get noticed, not waiting for people to take notice, very in line with the things you're talking about. And my thing is be the green shoe. Find a way to stand out when you stand up. You've done so many different things that you should be proud of. My final question is, what do you want to be remembered for, Donna? What is it about you? And I know it's sometimes uncomfortable for people to actually talk about their greatest gifts or strengths, et cetera. But what is it you want to be remembered for, the legacy that helped you stand out? Yeah, I, that's like that's a question you get when you're really old, isn't it? Um, 
So I'm not really comfortable with that question. It's funny, I will give you my blink on this, which is, which is interesting to me, but I'll, but I'll, I'll share it. Cause there's, yeah, you know, like, yeah, there's a lot of great work or whatever. I'd like to remember and be remembered as a mom who loved her kids and brought them great value and, and made their lives better. See, that's what to me separates people who can take all their successes and still have their true core value. Says everything about who you are and why you work, not what you do. Very impressive. Donna, this has been fun. I can't thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really cool and um, all the best with everything. You've made such a big impact and and now I know the reason for many of my things that I've been able to do as well. They're all tied to you. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. Thanks to your producer and your team, Craig. And, and good luck. We'll keep talking, okay? You got it. Take care. In our conversation, Donna shared the story behind her book called Wowsdom, The Girl's Guide to the Positive and the Possible. And that leads me to my one last thing. If you want to be an influencer, keep the word wow in your own personal dictionary. At Can Advisory Group, we talk about helping companies take the what and then deliver the wow. What that means is that everyone does or tries to do something, but it's not really what you do that matters so much. It's how you do it. And having a wow factor is what gets people to take notice. No matter what you do, Focus your energy on delivering something that makes people go wow, stopping them in their tracks, pausing to pay attention. The world is filled with people trying to break through the noise. Donna dealt with that at the WNBA. I did it at the LPGA. Getting people to take notice is not an easy thing. If you want to be relevant, what you need to do is spend time doing relevant things. The rest simply won't move the needle. So go for the wow your tracks to success will be a whole lot easier. Do me a favor, take a moment, share this podcast with somebody you think would enjoy it the way you did and give it a rating too. It helps. Until next time, I'm Craig Can. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. Don't forget to subscribe to the show for more great interviews and thoughts on reaching your highest personal and professional summit. You can follow Craig on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Craig Can. And for exclusive Tracks to Success content and news about our upcoming guests, you can find Tracks to Success on Twitter. It's at Tracks to Success.